Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. One verse today. One verse. This is Jesus speaking. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. One verse. But we are a month into a study on Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus began the sermon, if you remember, by speaking in the third person. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the persecuted. He's speaking generally in third person about who is blessed in the kingdom of God. But then last week, he drops into the second person and he says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Jesus is moving from general to specific. But so far, he's been trying to to tell the disciples who they are in the kingdom of heaven. And think about just how empowering this is for a group of fishermen and sinners and outcasts. Not only are they welcome in the kingdom of God, but they are blessed. And not only are they welcome and blessed, but they have a purpose in the kingdom of God. They have a role, a responsibility. They are the salt and light of the world. But in today's text, Jesus pivots pretty drastically. And now he starts speaking in the first person. And he says, I have come. Truly, I say to you. And so Jesus began the sermon by telling us as disciples of Jesus who we are. But now he's going to tell us who he is. And any time that Jesus of Nazareth says, this is why I came into the world. Or truly, I say to you, we should be dialed in. We should be on the edge of our seats. It's as if Jesus is saying, hey, shh, let me tell you something. And Jesus is going to tell us how things really are. When Jesus says, truly, I say to you, and he's going to say it many more times throughout the Sermon on the Mount, we should listen because he's about to tell us about reality. And in this passage today, the topic that he addresses is actually the Bible itself. And how to understand the scriptures. See, right here in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus gives us what I believe is an interpretive key for understanding everything in the scriptures that have come before it up to this moment. Meaning the Old Testament and everything in the scriptures that will come after this moment where Jesus speaks this, meaning the New Testament. And so the title of my sermon today, and it's a lofty one, how to read the Bible like Jesus. Part one. (laughs) Because there's more next week. And this week is going to be a little bit headier. Okay. It's this is, but we're laying the foundation so that next week can be much more practical. See, Jesus says that we are to love the Lord, our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're going to try to love the Lord with our mind this week so that we can love him fully with our hearts next week. Okay. So lay the foundation next week. We're going to get to the heart, but in your lap, In your hands, up here on the podium with me, or maybe on your phone app, is what we call the Bible, the Scriptures. And the Bible, I don't know, most of you probably feel this way, but the Bible can seem overwhelming at times, can't it? It's thick, 66 different books, thousands of pages, it's leather-bound sometimes, it it, it can seem intimidating, it can seem overwhelming, it can sometimes seem boring, honestly. It can seem confusing or complicated. At times, it can even seem infuriating. You're like, I just don't know how I feel about that. Or I don't know how I feel about that. Sometimes the Bible can just be infuriating to us. 
One teacher that I listened to this week says that most of us have one of three problems with the Bible. One, some of us just don't read it. That's your problem with the Bible. Some of you, that's your problem with the Bible. You just don't read it. Others of you, your problem with the Bible is that you read it, but you don't really understand it. Okay? And that may be you in that camp. You're like, I read it, but I don't know what's going on. Others of you, you say, I read the Bible, and I understand it just fine, but I just don't like it. And you just take issue with it. You're like, I don't like what it says here. I'm just going to skip that verse, and I'm going to move into this. I'm going to skip that book, and I'm going to move into this book. I'm just going to move on. But one of the common issues that people take with the Bible is that we don't know what to do with the Old Testament. What do we do with it? I mean, you got God. I mean, there's, there's judgment. There's, I mean, there's prophecy. There's all these laws and rules. And what is going on? And you're like, I get the Ten Commandments. Like, I get that. Uh, that makes sense to me. Uh, not murder. Don't commit adultery. Like, I get that. That makes sense. But what about some of the other commands in the Mosaic Law? Men can't shave their heads. Uh, one, don't tear your skin when you're grieving. Uh, don't eat raisins. Don't eat non-kosher maggots. And you're like, seriously, it's there. Kosher maggots, though, go for it. But if they're non-kosher, you can't have maggots. I mean, you're like, what do I do with this? And then there's the Levitical law. And you're like, I really don't know what to do with the Levitical law. Levitic- how many, just a show of hands, how many of you guys would like to do a sermon series on Leviticus? Start it at once we finish the sermon. Okay, we have a few. <laughs> I'm not ready. I'm too young. <laughs> uh, um, but how many sermon series have you heard on Leviticus? Hardly any. Because we don't know what to do with it. There's these rules, like these laws, like don't eat shellfish or don't eat pork. I'm like, I can't do that. Don't wear certain fabrics. Don't work on the Sabbath. Don't sleep with this person. You should forgive this person. This is how you should treat foreigners. There's all these rules and all these laws. And then there's all these stipulations about sacrificing innocent animals for the forgiveness of sins. And one of the, one of the, the questions that gets asked of Christianity all the time is, why do Christians apply some of these laws, but not all of them? Christians are inconsistent. I've heard that many times. You guys are inconsistent. You choose to obey these laws, but you don't really care about these. I see you eating barbecue all the time. I see you wearing cheap clothing, polyester or whatever. You must be inconsistent. You must be picking and choosing. Well, what do we say to this? First, we would say, I would say that Jesus was actually accused of the same thing. Jesus was accused of not being consistent with the law. In fact, he was actually accused of disrespecting the law. He was accused of trying to abolish it. See, Jesus, at the time that he preached the Sermon on the Mount, as his ministry was kind of getting going, he was was making the Jewish leaders, the teachers of the law, very, very uncomfortable. I mean, Jesus was going around healing on the Sabbath. You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. He was touching the unclean. Meaning he was hanging out with lepers and prostitutes and he was embracing them, hugging them, eating with them, touching them. You're not supposed to do that. He was eating with sinners. He was even teaching that prostitutes and tax collectors and fishermen and all the other riffraff of society could enter the kingdom of God if they just had faith. And he was, he hasn't said it explicitly yet at this point in his ministry, but he was already beginning to imply that salvation was available to anyone who would believe in him. Jew or Greek, slave or free. 
And it seemed like he was implying that someone could live an entire life of rebellion for decades, turn to Jesus and enter into God's kingdom. And that is what Jesus was saying. But this infuriated and confused the teachers of the law, the religious leaders, because they were going, Jesus, like the law says you should act this way and you should do these things to be clean and you don't interact with unclean people. This was infuriating to them. So they were accusing Jesus of disrespecting the law. They were accusing Jesus of trying to abolish the law of God. And we, we have a tendency to kind of look at religious leaders and Pharisees and scribes and teachers of the law in the Old Testament, uh, in the New Testament. We, tr- we tend to look at them as villains, like they're just mean and they're kind of crotchety. But think about this. From, imagine for a moment that you're a first century Jewish person living in Galilee in the, under the Roman Empire. I mean, the law, that's something that the Jewish people, and this is Jesus's primary audience, Jewish people. Jesus was Jewish. The law is something they held dear. The law was given to them by God to set them apart from other nations. And so they didn't see the law as like crushing restrictions. They saw the law as God bestowing importance upon them. They are in slavery in the Roman Empire and God has given them. But the law that God gave them back in the days of Moses, they're holding on to that. And they go, this is giving us an identity, even as our identity is being stripped away in slavery. And think, I just think of the Jewish uh, neighborhoods here in New York City. I mean, this week you had Rosh Hashanah. And so I was out at Prospect Park running Jew- Jewish, devout Jewish people all over the place. They were uh, sounding their shofars. And I mean, they were, they were celebrating and they were obeying the law, the Torah. But I think of all the New York City neighborhoods that are Jewish, whether it's Williamsburg or uh, Borough Park. See, obedience to the law is what makes them who they are. It's what gives their neighborhood and gives them an identity. And to be honest, in a city like ours that's always changing and always adopting new trends and new fads, there's actually something very, very beautiful, isn't there? And there's actually something very honorable about these these Jewish communities who live faithfully according to a completely different standard than the keep up with the Joneses, materialistic, consumeristic American way of life. There's something very beautiful about communities that are committed to, this t- to the teaching of God. And so to the Jewish people, the law was and is a beautiful thing, especially in the first century. They were oppressed by the Roman Empire and the law and the scriptures gave them a way to find an identity in the midst of oppression. So when Jesus comes in and he starts healing people on the Sabbath, and when Jesus comes in and he starts eating with prostitutes, and touching lepers and embracing sinners and outcasts. In their minds, the teachers of the law are thinking that Jesus is undermining the law. And they got upset and they said, Jesus is trying. Jesus, he's supposed to be a Jewish teacher, but he's trying to do away with the law that God gave us. He's trying to abolish God's gift to us. He's welcoming those who don't obey God. He's taking our distinction as God's chosen people away from us. This was scandalous to them. And we, like I said, we like to think of the Pharisees and the religious leaders as evil villains. But can't you see why they were concerned? This is all they knew. They knew the law. They loved the law. David said, I love the law. I meditate on it day and night. They loved the law. And in their minds, Jesus was trying to throw out their Bible. It's like he was setting their whole religion on fire. 
And that upset them, especially because he was gaining a following. But Jesus, who is Jewish, he's a Jewish rabbi, comes in and he teaches to them and he addresses these claims. They say, Jesus, you're trying to abolish the scriptures. And he addresses these claims. He says, no, 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 no. Do not think I've come to abolish the scriptures. But what Jesus tells them is he says, I've actually come to show you how to understand them. I've actually come so that you can actually see them more clearly. And so I want you to see this relationship of Jesus and the scriptures. Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, which is a shorthand way of saying the scriptures. I have not come to abolish them, but I've come to fulfill them. And so first, the first thing Jesus is saying is saying, whoa, whoa, don't think I'm trying to do away with the Jewish scriptures. Don't think I'm trying to do away with the Old Testament. And it wasn't called the Old Testament at that time. It was just called the Testament. I'm just kidding. It was called the, the, the scriptures. He's like, don't think I'm trying to do away with the scriptures. He's I love the scriptures. Jesus loved the scriptures and his teachings. And there's, you know, there's not a whole lot of red letters in the scriptures. We only have four gospels and and even those aren't all of his words. But in in all his teaching that we have in the scriptures, he quotes the Old Testament 64 times. And almost always he's alluding to it in some way. He spoke highly of Abraham and Moses and David and Elijah. He even expressed his belief that the Jonah story was literally true. Jesus wasn't disrespecting the scriptures. Jesus loved them dearly and he believed in them. And rather he's saying, look, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill them. Now, what does that mean that Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets? Colin Kaepernick chill. Okay. I'm not going there. All right. Relax. When Colin Kaepernick was in the fourth grade, he wrote a letter to his school teacher for an assignment in class. This is what he said. He's fourth grade. I'm five foot two inches, 91 pounds, but in seven years, I'm going to be six, four and I will play football at a good college. And then I will become the quarterback of the San Francisco 49ers. And what do you know it? Seven years later, he was six foot four, playing quarterback at the University of Nevada, and he would later be drafted in the second round by the San Francisco 49ers, and he would go on to lead them to a Super Bowl as their quarterback. Why do I say this? Because I think this is a picture of what fulfillment looks like. A shadow, a shadowy picture, but a picture nonetheless. See, fulfillment is not a prediction coming true. It's not just a prediction coming true. Fulfillment is the idea of projecting what is going to happen and then walking in it. In fact, another example that I, that I thought about using uh, is in 1987, Apple computers released a commercial where they predicted the iPad, FaceTime, and Siri. In 1987, they predicted it, and they even predicted the year that Siri would come out in that commercial. They said it would come out in 2011. So mind blown. Anyway, but... To fulfill something, it's not just a prediction coming true. It's the projecting what's going to happen and then walking in it. See, Colin Kaepernick didn't wake up one day in a San Francisco 49ers uniform. He foresaw it as a fourth grader and he walked in it to its completion. He did, he, he did all the things that was necessary for him to step into that uniform. 
practice, hard work, eating right, playing college ball, staying out of trouble. He did, he walked in the thing that was set out for him. And for Jesus, Jesus, when he comes on into the earth, his whole life is walking in the way that was set out for him. And what was set out for him was to fulfill the scriptures, the law and the prophets. Now, what does that mean? Early in the book of Genesis, I said, we're getting heady, theological today. But early in the book of Genesis, God saw that the world was out of control. So he chooses one man named Abraham because of his faith. And he made a promise to Abraham. He says, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bless the entire world through your family. If you'll have faith in me, if you'll follow me, and if you'll obey me. And then Abraham, he, he, in faith, he began following God. And Abraham's family began to grow. He had a son named Isaac. Then Isaac had a son named Jacob. And then God changed Jacob's name to Israel. And then that became the name of the people collectively. And as the family grew larger and larger and larger, it went from a family to to being an entire nation. The chosen nation of God on earth through which God would bless the world. But then through a turn of events, Israel is placed under slavery, uh, into slavery under Egyptian rule. But God uses Moses to liberate them, save them. But then he gives them a law. And notice that God saves before he gives us commands. Don't mix that order up. We're going to talk about that next week. But God's blessing over us comes before the commands. God saves, he redeems, he restores, and then he tells us how to live. He does not say, live this way so that you can be saved or redeemed or restored. You've been redeemed, you've been liberated from slavery in Egypt. Now I want you to live this way. He gives them a command. He gives them what's called the Mosaic Law. And in that is the Ten Commandments, which we know, at least you're somewhat familiar with. But then there's 619 other commands that the nation was to obey. Now stick with me, this is, the, the, those laws, the 619 commands covered three primary categories. The moral law, the civil law, and the ceremonial or sacrificial law. The moral law, that's the Ten Commandments, among many other commands. They say this is how you should live as people who've been rescued from slavery. This is how you should live as a response to what God has done for you because this imitates the character of God. This is ethics. The moral law teaches them ethics and it demonstrates God's character and it teaches them how to be holy. But then there's the civil law. Now, see, Israel has grown so large, the family has grown so large that now it is a nation. And the civil law, these laws in the Mosaic commandments and in Levitical commandments, it says this is how you should be governed. Okay, so they had that. God is the one who bestowed upon them their govern, their constitution, so to speak. This is how you're to treat foreigners. This is how you're to care for the poor. This is how you're to sentence murderers. This is what this is how you're to offer restitution to someone who's been gored by another man's ox. Right. That's in there. I promise. <laughs> or if if your friend's uh, neighbor's donkey falls into a hole, this is how you dig him out. Civil law. These are the laws of the nation of Israel, how to pursue justice, how to seek wisdom. And they demonstrate God's justice and they demonstrate God's wisdom. But then there's the ceremonial law and the sacrificial law. And these are the laws that pertain to how you remain clean before God. How to how to wash yourself when you've broken a command or how to remain clean, Uh, ceremonial rituals, things like don't eat shellfish, don't touch lepers, don't wear certain fabrics. The point of the ceremonial law was to reveal to the people that they were spiritually unclean and that in order to enter God's presence, they had to be purified. 
And so the point, it was a shadow of what was to come, but the point was you are unclean. And if, and if you want to enter into the presence of God, you must be clean. And then in the ceremonial laws, there's these, these stipulations about animal sacrifice, and that's there to reveal how sin must be atoned for. And so the Jewish people, on the Day of Atonement, they would transfer their sins, so to speak, onto an innocent lamb, and then they would kill the lamb, and they would believe that with the shedding of the lamb's blood and the dying of the lamb, their sins would be killed with that lamb because the lamb was innocent. And then in Leviticus, you see laws for priests. You see these in Exodus as well. This is, the, you know, the priest on the Day of Atonement would go in deep into the temple, into the presence of God, and he would stand before God as a mediator between God and the people. And he would be the one who would stand and say, forgive the people of their sins. But the priest, in order to step into God's presence, had to go through all these rituals to be clean and had to wash in these certain ways because you had to be clean to enter into God's presence. God demands purity. And the fact is, though, all throughout the Old Testament, Israel fails at all three of these commands. And at times they're judged for it. They failed to love foreigners as they should. They failed to be a light to the nations. They were often selfish at times. They failed to remain clean. They, they often rebelled and disobeyed God. And Israel, even though they tried, they failed at obeying the law that God gave them. But Jesus comes onto the scene and he claims that where the nation, where the people of Israel failed to live out their calling... He would succeed. And he essentially says, where you have failed, I will succeed. Where you messed up, I'm going to pick up the pieces and I'm going to run it to the end zone, so to speak. I'm going to cross the finish line. Jesus was perfectly sinless, which means he obeyed the moral law perfectly. He was morally upright. Jesus was perfectly just and wise, meaning he treated foreigners with mercy. He loved the poor. He loved the oppressed. He was just to them. He was wise toward them. He obeyed the civil law perfectly, and he demonstrated wisdom and justice perfectly. But now let's talk about the ceremonial and the sacrificial law, because this is where we get confused. This is likely where the religious leaders of Jesus' day were getting really nervous. See, there were three aspects of the ceremonial law. One, the first was to remain, how to remain pure. How to remain pure, not, don't, how, to, how to stay away from impurity. And then the second part of the, the ceremonial and sacrificial law is how the priest would cleanse himself to enter God's presence and be the mediator between God and the people. And then the third is the process. It would outline in the ceremonial law the process of transferring sins onto an innocent sacrificial animal so it could be sacrificed for our sins. And here's what you need to know about Jesus. Jesus was completely pure. He was sinless, not because of what he ate, not because of what he didn't eat, but he would, and not because of the clothes he wore or not because of the people he touched or didn't touch. Jesus was pure because his heart was pure. Jesus even said to the Pharisees, he says, you missed the point of the law. The point is that not that what goes into your mouth or what touches your skin that defiles you. It's what comes out of your heart that actually makes you unclean. And Jesus reveals that all of us are unclean because all of us have sin in our hearts. He's going to go on to tell us next week that it's not about getting angry externally. It's about having anger in your heart. See, Jesus says it's your heart that is unclean. It's not what goes into your body that makes you unclean. It's what comes out of your heart. And Jesus was completely pure. His heart was pure his entire life. Secondly, Jesus fulfilled the priestly role. See, the purpose of the high priest in the ceremonial law was to be a mediator between God and people. But Hebrews 4.14 says that Jesus isn't the great high priest who passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, so let us hold fast to our confession. Jesus, when he died on the cross, 
The moment he breathed his last breath, the temple, the, the veil in the temple that separated the people from God, the, the veil that the high priest would walk through, that, that veil was torn in two from top to bottom the moment Jesus breathed his last breath. And that symbolized that Jesus has torn the veil that separates God and man. And now we can pursue God with confidence because Jesus has mediated for us perfectly. He is the great high priest. So we don't need a high priest anymore. We already have the ultimate one. But then finally, Jesus fulfilled the entire sacrificial system in himself. Jesus was sinless. He was without blemish. He was completely clean, completely innocent. And he became the innocent lamb sacrificed for the people. When Jesus began his ministry, it was John the Baptist who declared, Behold, that is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And later in the Gospels, we will see Jesus become like an animal sacrifice. He will have the sins of the people, yours and mine, placed upon him, even though he is innocent and even though we are guilty. And he will die the death that we deserve in our place. And for those who believe in him, your sins will be nailed to the cross with him and will be remembered no more by God, your God who is in heaven. See, the one who is completely clean would have the sin of the world transferred onto him so that unclean people could be made clean. See, he fulfilled the ceremonial law through his perfect life and innocent death. Now, let me give you one example of this in the scriptures, one of my favorite examples. In Mark chapter 5, there's a woman who has a discharge of blood. And the ceremonial law says a lot of stuff about this, about menstrual cycles and all of that. And I don't want to get into that. But it says that, this, that during this time, you would be, women would be considered unclean. But this woman had a medical condition to where this discharge of blood was happening perpetually. She had had it for years. And so she was unclean. She had been cast out of society. Nobody could touch her. She was a misfit. And she, there was actually rules that lepers and people like this, that when they got into crowds, when they were like 50 paces away, they would have to shout, unclean, unclean, so that people could scatter so they wouldn't accidentally get touched. But this woman hears that Jesus is in town and she does not care. She's heard these stories of Jesus and she approaches Jesus and she grabs the bottom of his robe. And she's thinking that maybe if I can just touch him, I can get whatever it is that he brings. Because I've heard that he's healing people. And she touches his robe and the crowd <gasps> gasps. This, how dare this woman this unclean woman touched this Jewish teacher of the law, this rabbi. And everybody's thinking, what is going to happen? Jesus is going to turn around. He could have her stoned. What, I mean, what is going to go? Is he going to go to the temple and wash up so that he is not unclean anymore? But know what he does? He turns around and he says, who touched me? And then he looks the woman in the eye and he says, woman, your faith has made you well. See, Jesus is reversing the ceremonial law. The ceremonial law, the cleanliness laws in the Old Testament indicated that if you touched something that was unclean, you would become unclean. But Jesus reverses that and says, I'm the only thing that's truly clean. You're all unclean. But if you touch me, I can make you clean. See, my wife one time, I, before we moved to New York, we had a yard and I was mowing the grass one time. And I came in, it was a hot day, and so the grass was sticking to me. I came in and I gave her a big hug and a kiss and she said, ah, don't touch me, you're unclean. I said, baby, that's what a Pharisee would say. <laughs> but in the kingdom of God, when that, that which is clean touches that which is unclean, the clean thing doesn't become dirty. The dirty thing becomes clean. 
And Jesus restores and renews and touches the outcasts and the lepers and the prostitutes and the sinners. He heals them and restores them and covers them up. And because of that, he's cast outside the city and he's nailed to a cross. Jesus touches that which is unclean that's been cast out. And that thing, that person gets brought in while he gets cast out. He takes our place. The sacrificial laws were to point to a Jesus who would sacrifice himself for you and for me. See, this is the radical message of Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And it shook the religious leaders because they, their whole lives had been searching for salvation in the law. But Jesus says, you can't even obey the law. You can't do it. But I have. And because I did, I can make you clean. See, the law was never meant to save you. Jesus once told the, leader, the religious leaders, he says, you look to the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. But he says, the scriptures were meant to point to me. See, the religious leaders of the day, they were getting frustrated and upset with Jesus because he was disrupting their vision of what life should be. But if they had ears to hear, they would know that Jesus' vision for their life was so much greater and his understanding of the law was so much more beautiful and so much more fuller than what they could ever have imagined. And don't you do, and I do the same thing. We get frustrated with Jesus. We don't know if we, we don't like the way he does that. We, I don't like these commands, Jesus. I don't like what you're doing in my life. But if you only knew, if you could only interpret your life and what is happening in your life through the lens of what Jesus is doing, you would know that God is for you, not against you. Now that leaves us with the question, what do we do with all these commands? What do we do with the Old Testament? Do we still obey the civil laws, the ceremonial laws, the moral laws? Do they apply to us? And the answer is yes, but to varying degrees. See, because let's talk about the civil laws. Because Jesus offers his salvation to all people, whether Jewish or non-Jewish, what you see in the New Testament, the moment after Pentecost, when the gospel goes, scatters across all nations, is that the church now becomes, all over the world, becomes the place of God's presence, and he dwells with his followers. But now this means, after Pentecost, that God's people don't represent one nation state. They're scattered all over multiple nation states. They're citizens of the kingdom of God and citizens of other nations. So in that case, the civil laws can't apply. Because the people of God are not one nationalistic entity. But we can look at the civil laws, the things that talk about justice and how to treat immigrants and how to treat murderers and how to, how to pursue justice. And we can look at those and we can, it can inform us on how to pursue justice. It can even inform how we vote. It can inform how we try to persuade our public leaders to adopt certain laws. It can, it can inform the way we treat outsiders or treat our neighbors. The civil laws are there to teach us that we, they can inform us how to live. But they don't, they don't apply to America anymore or, to, or at all or to the church. They can't. The civil laws, therefore, they inform us on how to live in the world in a way that honors God. The ceremonial law, though. It was, not meant, it was meant to point to something greater, which means it was fulfilled completely in Christ. Jesus is the sacrifice. Jesus is the high priest. He's the one who makes us clean. Even in the Old Testament, in 1 Samuel 5, it says that the sacrificial system, the ceremonial law, pointed beyond itself to something greater. And Jesus is that which was greater. So the ceremonial laws and the cleanliness laws, they don't apply to us. You don't have to avoid shellfish. You can eat pork. Praise God. This is what Jesus told Peter. Jesus told Peter, arise, get up and eat. 
I've fulfilled this law. You don't, you don't, it's not what you eat that makes you unclean. It's your heart, but I've cleansed your heart. Don't worry about it. Eat the pork, eat the bacon, go for it. If you get a skin rash, you can still come to church. Amen? What Jesus it meant to, to, what God was teaching us through the pure, purity, the cleanliness, the sacrificial, the ceremonial laws, whatever you want to call them, what he was teaching us is that we are all unclean, we're all sick, we're all impure, and we're all lepers because of our own sin. But through the sacrifice of Jesus, we can be purified, made clean, and forgiven. Therefore, the ceremonial law is not morally binding on Christians today. Its purpose was to show us the impurity of our hearts and the severity of our sins so, that was so severe that death of an innocent sacrifice was required. But Jesus was that sacrifice. He fulfilled it for us. So now when we read those, we just skip over them. We read them. They don't apply. No, 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 no. You read them looking forward to Jesus and you go, oh, Jesus, you have cleansed that which is impure within me. And when you read about just how horrific it is, for an animal to be slaughtered for the forgiveness of sins, you can look to the cross and go, oh, Jesus, look what you've done for me on the cross, what you endured for me on the cross. And when you read about the high priest who has to go through all these things, you go, Jesus, that high priest never stood a chance. He was just a foreshadow of what was to come. You are fully pure and you stand in God's presence and you mediate between us and your father. And now we can enter into your father's presence because we're in you and we can enter in with confidence and joy. The moral law, however, still remains as God's way of showing us what he is like. We're going to talk next week about this, the beauty of God's commands, the beauty of holiness. The Ten Commandments apply to us. We should seek to live out these things. Because those are, that's God, God lays out a blueprint for what abundant life looks like, what his character looks like. And if we want to become like him, if we want to be, be conformed into the image of Jesus, the, the commands are what are the pathway to get us there. And it sh- it's going to reveal to us how we are to live if we want to fully experience abundant life in Christ. If, and here's the thing, if Jesus truly loves you, if God truly knows what's best for you, then we must trust that his commands are good. So we ought to seek to obey them in order that we would become more like Jesus and thus experience more of God. So when you hear someone accuse Christians of picking and choosing, oh, you say this about this thing, you say this about uh, you're being financially generous, or you say these things about sex, or you say these things about forgiving your enemies, but you, you wear cheap fabrics. You guys are picking and choosing. You're inconsistent. When you hear that, you know that this doesn't have to be an accusation that you fear because it actually gives an opportunity for you to explain the gospel of Jesus. So when you read the scriptures and you come across the Old Testament laws, you don't have to be confused as to what they mean or how they apply. If it is a moral command about how to live, you can trust that God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And that by by obeying what he has said to be true and ethical about the world, that you'll actually be becoming more like his son and you'll be experiencing more of him. If it's a law about how the biblical people of Israel, the nation of Israel, is to conduct themselves in the world, you can glean wisdom from it as you seek to live as a citizen of God's kingdom here and now as a citizen in the United States or in New York City. But if it's a law where it's speaking about what it takes to be cleansed of sin and to be purified, you don't have to be overwhelmed. You do not have to wonder what it means. You can look to Jesus, the ceremonial and sacrificial lamb who fulfilled those things for you. See, we've all failed to obey God. We're all impure in some way and our sin must be atoned for. But because of Jesus, we don't have to go through rituals. 
We don't have to go find an innocent animal. And thank God we don't have to live in fear wondering if we've done enough and if our sacrifices are enough. We can know that Jesus once and for all paid the penalty for our sin. His sacrifice was enough. Jesus died once and for all so that you can be confident that because he died and rose again, you can be pure in God's sight and enter into his presence because of Jesus. See, in the kingdom of God, that which is impure becomes pure when it is touched by the pure son. That which is innocent becomes sin so that those who are sinful can become innocent. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus fulfills the law so that we no longer live as slaves or in fear of the law for not measuring up. But because of Jesus, we have confidence in God's love and his forgiveness.